get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained, I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade. I'm greatness and left. Well, 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 this is the Church Politics Podcast, and I gotta be honest, it has been a minute since we've brought a new episode to you, but don't worry, we have been hard at work. And so today we have some good news for you, along with the good news that we always try to bring to you every week. Things have been growing and developing for the and campaign. So as many of you know, I am the president of the and campaign and we have been hard at work. So if you're a part of the and camp, which are biblical Christians who unabashedly uphold uh, biblical values and social justice, who refuse to make conservatism or progressivism their religion, who are not afraid to challenge the spirit of the day's injustice or its immorality, who will not surrender the compassion or the conviction of Jesus Christ. And if you're determined to love your enemy and at the same time, look them in the eye and demand justice and righteousness, then you're one of us. And we have an announcement for you. It is my great pleasure again, as the president of the and campaign, uh, Justin Gibney, that uh, I wouldn't want to announce that Michael Ware, brother Ware, y'all know him. Uh, if you've been listening to this show and Reverend Dr. C.J. Rhodes are joining the and campaign's executive team. You heard it right there, joining our executive team. So these two who are leaders in their own right will be joining the and campaign's leadership. And I am excited about that. Michael, who you all know very well, uh, we know that he has been in politics for years, uh, that he was in the White House. He was a White House staffer and also uh, ran the uh, religious outreach during the Obama re-election. He will be the Ann campaign's chief strategist, Dr. C.J. Rhodes, who is the pastor of his, the historic Mount Helm Baptist Church, will be our public theologian and residence. And when I say I'm excited about this, man, I've been working on this for a while. Um, myself, uh, Show Baraka, Angel Maldonado have been looking for others to join in as we really become a national organization. And that's part of what this was about. Uh, we got uh, brother CJ, uh, Reverend CJ Rhodes, who is in Jackson, Mississippi, has been putting in work uh, with the community on a lot of different issues, making sure the church is moving outside of the four walls of the church. And he's really been a, a big inspiration to a lot of people in that way. Uh, a rising star, uh, just like Michael himself. And I'll be honest to you, uh, honest with you. Uh, both of these guys understand the heart of the Ann campaign, which number one is sound doctrine, biblical doctrine, believing that the Bible is the authority that we should be listening to. And at the same time, understanding the need and the call for social justice. And, and that's a lot of what this is about. They understand that and they have the experience and the expertise to help us execute and reach as many people uh, as we can. Something else that attracted me to these two uh, was, you know, I get into a lot of conversation with folks who are otherwise very intelligent. But then we when we start talking about politics, they start just regurgitating what they've heard on MSNBC or what they've heard on Fox News. I didn't get that from these guys. These guys, you could tell were working with a biblical lens. Anything that came to them that is partisan or that is ideological, 
uh, they critique it. They look at it with a very critical eye. And that's not to say that they're going to necessarily disagree with it, but they are very uh, deliberate in how they go about their politics and putting uh, Jesus Christ and the church first. And so I want to pass it over to you. Michael, can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on joining the AND campaign? Absolutely. Thank you, Justin. It's an exciting time uh, for for me. Uh, I'm thrilled to uh, to to be joining you and and uh, Dr. Rhodes and the work of the AND campaign. And uh, y- you know, I-, I think it's an exciting time, an exciting move for those of us that have felt uh, politically homeless. That have felt. Um, uh, a, a, a little like uh, or a lot like uh, the Christian representation in our politics uh, was not what it should be uh, and what it requires to start to change that a little bit is uh, not just having individuals out there sort of writing blog posts and kind of um, uh, and kind of doing their own thing uh, what it will require is, uh, those of us who feel that way to come together and to pour into an institution, uh, whether, uh, you know, you're, you're officially joining that institution, uh, as I am, or, uh, you know, this is obviously a renewal of the invitation, uh, to you, our, our listeners, uh, and, and, uh, others who feel this way to join with the AND campaign. Uh, uh, Justin, you and I had the opportunity, um, uh, I was uh, grateful to be invited to participate in the frontline discipleship tour uh, that took place in major cities across the country uh, this summer. Uh, and, it, you know, it was an amazing event for uh, the speakers, the, uh, the the amazing speakers who are thinking uh, with integrity and thinking with great care about the challenges that face our country. Uh, but I was really uh, most impressed at the event by the people who attended, by the kinds of people that the AM campaign attracts, people who are passionate and diverse and kind and and, and curious. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's who the AND campaign represents. It's part of why I'm so uh, proud and eager to to join and jump in. And I'm excited about all that lies ahead where uh, the AND campaign is going to be continuing to work to educate and equip the church uh, for, for a wise political engagement and to uh, disrupt the political status quo that has uh, developed uh, that can benefit from some other centered, uh, common good focused uh, uh, Christians that, that are uh, using the responsibility and influence that they have, uh, not just for their own ends, but for the common good. And so, Justin, I'm, I'm excited about this, excited to join uh, Dr. Rhodes as well. Uh, and uh, it, it's going to be uh, great fun to see how this develops. Yeah, I agree. Dr. Rhodes, tell us a little bit about yourself and then I'll, I'll also about your journey towards joining the AND campaign. Yeah, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with the two of you. Uh, mad respect to both Justin and to Michael and to the broader AND campaign family. Um, my journey in general has been one that has uh, deeply shaped by uh, many of the elements that the Annie campaign lifts up. I grew up in central Mississippi in a small railroad town, and my dad, 
was and is a civil rights attorney that helped to really change the face of uh, politics and political landscapes uh, in the city of Mississippi. My mother was was a school teacher um, and a public tool. And so I grew up uh, in that culture, grew up in the black church where we didn't bifurcate sound doctrine and social justice. They were pretty much altogether part of the same thing. And I graduated from high school, went to the University of Mississippi, and uh, there got a crash course in racial politics in a way that I hadn't uh, grown up. I went there as someone called to gospel ministry at the age of 18. I often say that Old Miss was a laboratory for leadership that would later uh, move me into Duke Divinity School, where uh, that was deepened from a theological perspective, and then moved back to Mississippi, full of that learning and burning, uh, full of the idea that uh, the church, following after Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, uh, of course, has to do the pastoral, priestly things of baptizing, burying. Uh, at the same time, we have have an opportunity and responsibility to go out of four walls and, and to do ministry there. And so everything from payday lending reform, criminal justice reform, education policy reform, I've been a part of those conversations and uh, with local radio show, in the church, at a HBCU, uh, meeting people from different generations who, who basically ask the simple question, is there a word from the Lord? And I believe that uh, that is part of what Ann Campaign's mission is, to declare the word of the Lord uh, from the place of, of scriptural authority and uh, to the end of social justice. And I think that's, that's important. Uh, and it unifies, it unifies uh, what I would like to call common ground, common good Christians who appreciate that the church has a role in the public square. And uh, it's good to know the work that you, Justin, show uh, Angel and others committed to some years ago is really rising to become the vanguard, I think, uh, vanguard movement uh, for this generation of Christian change agents uh, who, who will do in many ways a lot of what we saw done in the 1950s and 60s uh, in the church-based civil rights movement. And so very, very honored to be a part of the end campaign and to see what God will continue to do by God's providence. Well, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Rhodes, man. We are so excited about this and looking forward to all we're going uh, to accomplish together. Uh, I appreciate this brotherhood and even the sisters that have come along, too. There'll be some announcements in that regard as well. But we have a lot to work to do, uh, but a lot of support. And we thank all of you out there who supported church politics in the end campaign thus far. So thank you for that. Moving on a little bit, uh, Dr. Rhodes and I were in Chicago about a week ago. Uh, for what was called uh, Courageous Conversations. This was put on by uh, Jude, the Jude 3 Project. The Jude 3 Project is founded and run by, man, a, 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 real, uh, a real star to me, which is Lisa Fields, also known, according to uh, Dr. Rose, as Evangelist Lisa Fields. But she is an awesome person. <laughs> and what she was able to do was bring together some of the top uh, uh, biblical uh, black scholars, along with some of the uh, the top 
uh, more liberal uh, uh, black scholars to have a conversation about some really meaningful subjects uh, in regard to the church. So there was conversations on the authority of scripture, uh, what justice meant, uh, gospel preaching, uh, Jesus versus Paul, all these different conversations. And it was a packed house. It was at Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago, which is pastored by uh, Dr. Charlie Dates. And it was just a wonderful time. I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Rhodes to speak on it a little bit. He was actually uh, one of the moderators, did an excellent job. And what were what were some of your thoughts just about that event and what what uh, Lisa did for us all. Yeah. So first of all, I, I shout out to Lisa Fields. She has done incredible work with Youth Project and uh, the courageous conversations that we had in Chicago was, I think, one of, if not the most historic gatherings uh, of African-American scholars and practitioners representing, if you will, the the big theological divide in the black church. We often talk about the black church as if it is monolithic. Uh, Raphael Warnock talks about the divided mind of the black church. And with that, he's speaking uh, explicitly about the ways in which black churches have dealt with piety and politics or protest. But the biggest divide actually is around theological claims, uh, the authority of scripture, uh, hermeneutics, you know, who gets greater play in our theological interpretation. And so that Lisa was able to bring those divergent folks in the room together, on panels together, moderated by solid moderators, was phenomenal. One of the things I think that was really, really cool for me, having been trained mainly uh, in the mainline uh, tradition, is is to see very solid African-American men and women trained in more evangelical schools, who have uh, a level of um, intellectual acuity, who have passion, who have the breadth and depth to engage some of the tough questions. I think about Dr. Esau McCauley in particular, uh, who, who was solid on the panel uh, that he was a part of. And so I'm very excited about what Lisa and the Youth Project, uh, what they're doing generally speaking, and then what that Carice conversation did in particular. At the end of the day, I think it's important for those of us who are part of the so-called Black church to appreciate uh, that doctrine does matter, that theology does matter, uh, and that we need to be both convictional and compassionate about our stances, about where we stand. Uh, And I look forward to uh, further conversations to that end, but I'll I'll close with this. I left with a greater gratitude for uh, how I've been shaped, what I believe, where I stand, uh, which is, you know, uh, well, I won't, yeah, we won't go into too much detail, but I definitely want to say that I think Lisa and what she's done with apologetics is absolutely important for where we are. And for those of us who stand in solidarity with Lisa and what she's doing, uh, I think it's an important and wonderful time in the history of the church uh, to have those voices elevated so that we don't hear just from one or two camps. Yeah, that's that's true, man. And I, I just want to give Lisa another shout out because she did such, such an excellent job. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was the tone and the spirit of how everything went down. 
I mean, these are tough issues. So these aren't things that people just, you know, you can dust off your shoulder and it's not a big deal. These go to the heart of what we believe. And yet because of who Lisa is, she was able to create an environment that was constructive, that was civil and respectful. And I and I really appreciate her for, for doing that and providing a safe space for everybody to have these conversations. Uh, I was just going back and texting back and forth with her right before the show. And she said that she is cool with the and campaign actually doing maybe a Facebook live where we answer some of those questions for the and campaign. I think it's good to get those questions out there to see both sides. And but at the end of the day, the and campaign is about answers. And so we want to give you our answers uh, to those questions. And I'll just give you a hint. It'll it'll be coming out of the Bible. This will be this actual courageous conversations will be airing on in on the impact network again that's the impact network on october 6th 13th uh october 20th and 27th uh from 8 to 9 from 8 a.m to 9 a.m on the impact network eastern standard time also november 3rd and november 10th so after those air of the end campaign max actually put some of our answers out there and lisa has given us the approval to do that and i want to give her our church folk champ uh award for doing uh, what she did with Courageous Conversations, as as uh, uh, Dr. Rhodes said, this was an epic event. It was historic. And I hope her much more success with the, the, the Jew 3 Project. If you don't know about the Jew 3 Project, you need to find you need to go look it up. It is an excellent uh, work that they're doing. Hey, uh, Dr. Rhodes, thank you so much for joining us. Something tells me this will not be your last time on church politics. But we do appreciate your time, brother. And I look forward to working with you. I will see you in San Jose. Awesome. Same to you, brother. All right, Michael. Uh, we, 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 that's fantastic. <laughs> because we were gone for so long, so much has happened. I, uh, some of our listeners have, have been waiting for us to speak about about 10 different issues, if not more. <laughs> we can't cover all of those today, but I think we can get into a few. What we got? What do we have in the queue right now? Yeah, well, I mean, it's been uh, encouraging and, you know, also a little funny to see people, uh, you know, mention and campaign or, or mention us on Twitter. And, and you know, the last, uh, you know, every time something, something pops off, you know, uh, uh, folks are uh, eager to 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 uh, to hear what what the conversation is going to be on the podcast. And so, uh, so so that's that's encouraging. uh and there sure is a lot to talk about. I mean, I think a, a place to start is with the dynamics and the implications around uh, this New York Times op-ed from an anonymous uh, senior uh, Trump administration official. Uh, and, you know, that that's uh, anonymous in a two-sided way. It's anonymous because the person who wrote it wanted to be anonymous. And it's anonymous because the New York Times agreed to publish it anonymously which is uh as as they uh said with the with the publication is is not something they regularly uh do but the gravity of uh this this official's placement in the administration and the sort of the rationale behind uh this person's uh wanting to be anonymous was was compelling uh enough for for them to publish it in this way and you know basically now, this official didn't tell us much about Trump that we didn't know. It's it's more about uh, more about their their identity, the fact that someone from inside the Trump administration, that uh, President Trump 
is responsible for putting in their position uh, and isn't uh, someone who's on their way out the door, who's trying to get a book contract uh, this very minute, uh, uh, that they're saying that Trump is unfit for the job. Not only that, but that they view a major part of their job. And in, in according to the writing, uh, this is shared by other colleagues. A major part of their job is to work against the president uh, to find ways to foil uh, what they consider to be uh, uh, plans that are not in the best interest of, of the country um, from inside the White House. And uh, just I have a lot of thoughts about about that, I have a lot of thoughts about the op ed and, and the the ethics of it, the import of it, uh, what it tells us. Uh, but. Uh, you know, th- this news actually dropped when we were together in Atlanta, and, and you had some some interesting thoughts. So I'll, I'll pass it to you. What, what do you what do you think about all this? Yeah, I think you hit part of it on the head. Uh, the way that this is different. So we've heard a lot of talk about uh, folks who were in the resistance and this, you know, this group that was kind of going after Trump, and, and it was it, it seemed to be all people who were not in the White House, right? Just in other people who were in other agencies who had been there for years and you didn't know exactly who they were. Uh, for you, for those of you don't, that don't know, when you come in as an executive, whether you're the mayor or you're the governor or the president, not every, not all the people around you are your people, right? So it, you can't, because those agencies have to be run a certain way, uh, people have to understand the different uh, levels of compliance and all that stuff. You can't just take everybody out of an agency and put your own people in there. Some people, especially when you're talking about the FBI, things like that, some people have to stick around because they know how things work. And so the narrative that's been pushed by a lot of Trump folks has been, well, you have these people who are sticking around, who are going against um, the Trump administration. And what were they calling it, Michael? I, I'm trying to remember what they were calling these folks who were in, in these other uh, the other state, departments. Justin, the, the deep, deep state. state, the deep state, which is a very creative name. So so that's been the narrative all along. Well, now that we have this op ed, we see that it's actually, as you were pointing out, somebody that he's responsible for, somebody that he hired or one of his people hired. So that kind of kills that narrative right there. Uh, outside of that, you know, it just really shows and confirms that this circus is what we already knew it to be. You know, that the Trump White House is in complete disarray. Uh, I guess it's it's good to know that the staff knows that uh, that that they're, that the president isn't prepared or equipped. But the question you have to ask is, what does that say about the institution? What does that say about our politics when you have people in administration actively going against what the president is trying to do and then revealing that uh, through an anonymous op ed in The New York Times? I don't know exactly what to make of that, except that it's bad. It's very bad news for us. Uh, The other question that you have to ask is if I'm part of the resistance or the deep state and I'm actually effectively going against the president, why would I expose that? Right. Why would I why would I let him know now he's looking for me now? They're looking for ways to make sure that nobody is obstructing what he's doing. And there could be a couple answers to this. Again, this is all. Um you know, speculation on my part. I, I, I'm not exactly sure why anyone did it, but it may be to absolve themselves. I mean, people know that when you're working for the that working for the Trump administration is probably going to come with a stain. It's going to come with a stain that may last for a little while. And they may be trying to say, hey, we need to give ourselves an out when we get out of this administration. At least there may be 
the chance that people say, oh, maybe they were part of the um, resistance against him and maybe I won't be staying for the rest of my career. That's just something that is a possibility. I really don't know. Or maybe it's just to let the American people know that, hey, look, there are some people that are fighting. We know how bad it is. There are some people that are fighting for you on the inside. Hard to tell. It's hard, to, but it's hard to make this good news. Um, you, you know, you really hate the anonymous side of it. Uh, you wish that people would just come out and say what was going on and who they are. Um, this, but but then again, this is a very tough situation. You're talking about going against the most powerful man, uh, maybe in the world, and so uh, I don't I don't want to assume that you know uh, most people would would uh, take the chance of putting their name out there. I don't know, but this is a tough situation and one of those things that uh, we're just gonna have to see how it works out. You know, you still have the Mueller investigation moving forward. We haven't talked about that as much because that's one of those issues that could easily take over the whole show. Uh, we want to hear more facts and then we'll get back to that. But whew, just in, just more news that makes it very hard uh, to be hopeful about what this administration is going to do in, in, in the near future. Well, Justin, I mean, just the um, the the president, the, the precedent setting nature of this and the, the way that it um, undermines any sense of stability in government. So, uh, you, you know, no one elected this senior administration official who was apparently deciding on his own judgment or her own judgment uh, to foil the elected, whether we like it or not, the elected president of the United States, a, a president who was you know, uh, I would imagine uh, elected with the help of whoever this administration official is, with the support of whoever this administration official is. There are uh, relatively few uh, senior administration officials who are not political supporters of Trump, or at least who did not say say anything negative about Trump, because as we know from other reporting, uh, this president was was very attentive to who was saying negative things about him when he was out on the campaign trail. And, and, and many of them have been locked out of jobs. Uh, but, but I actually like, like president Trump has a right to be paranoid and, and they, he has a point to say, this is not right. Like, like it's just, it's just not right. Uh, Bob Woodward's book came out. And Bob Woodward, um, who, of course, is, you know, the Watergate journalist, Washington Post, a uh, longtime Washington Post reporter, you know, famed journalist. He has his first book out about the Trump administration, and he wrote books about the Obama administration and basically every administration since Nixon. Uh, and in this book that uh, uh, one example that he gives is Gary Cohn, the economic advisor, actually uh, taking uh, a a draft of an order that would have withdrawn the United States from its trade treaty with um with South Korea. Now we don't have time to get into all the ways that that would be bad, not just economically, uh, but in terms of uh, uh the stability of uh, the Korean Peninsula and and the stability of uh, 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 of America's ties with South Korea and how that relates to North Korea, um, uh, but uh, the, it's what President Trump wanted to do. And Bob Woodward reports that Gary Cohn 
went into President Trump's desk and removed the order because he knew, or at least he he thought, and it sounds like it's right, that President Trump wouldn't remember it. (laughs) That President Trump, if if the order was removed from his desk, uh, that President Trump uh, would just kind of forget about it. but that, that is not how a government is supposed to function. Uh, that's not how democratic accountability is supposed to work. And so the, the, the precedent that, that this sets, uh, first of all, I, I don't think this works for the Trump administration, but for a future administration, the message it's going to send to the American people that even if you end up electing the president that you wanted, uh, that there will be uh, people who feel empowered uh unelected officials in the government to work directly and expressly against uh, the only person in the executive branch that has been elected, uh, that undermines, uh, that undermines civic representation that undermines, frankly, our democracy. uh, And, and I don't really see a way uh, to, to address it, there are some constraints that we could pl- uh, that we could place on, uh, but there's no real way to ensure that your staff aren't, uh, you know, slow rolling uh, certain initiatives out of their own policy prerogatives. So, so just I, I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a mess. I, I don't think that that the writer of this op-ed is a hero by any means. Uh, I think the value of the op-ed was to uh, confirm once again from the inside of the administration uh, that President Trump is unfit for uh, this office. But I'm not like, I'm not glad or I'm not relieved that there's this cadre of unelected officials uh, who are sort of wantonly choosing which of the president's orders to uh, to follow and which to, you know, covertly undermine. I mean, it's all just so ridiculous. Yeah, I'd agree because you have to see the broader implications. And a lot of times we don't want to see the forest from the trees. We can be so upset with Trump, which you and I have expressed uh, some of those issues uh, many times before that we don't realize that the implications of all this are bigger than Trump. What happens when Trump is gone? And if you set certain precedents and people and they begin uh, to be the norm, then you put your government and, and your people in a whole different situation. And so we have to uphold standards and in, in, at a level and at a place, even if the president doesn't do that. And so these people, I think the best thing would be to say who you are. Leave, you know, leave the administration and say, hey, here's what I try. You know, here's what I tried to do or here's why I'm leaving. Uh, but I'm not sure how hopeful this is at the end of the day because he was elected. And if uh, things get out of hand, there are um, there are means to go about that. I mean, we have whistleblower laws and all those things. So I get it. I see what people are saying, but we got to have to be very careful in regard to issues like that. And I'm sorry, just one more thing that the, the op-ed mentions that apparently early on in the administration, uh, the cabinet, there were, you know, whispers in the cabinet about uh, using the 25th Amendment, which would, uh, is basically the cabinet declaring the president unfit to carry out his duties. Right. Uh, and look like. If if there really is this widespread, and I'm not saying this flippantly, uh, but one reason why I've been you know hesitant to call for impeachment and whatever is just because Justin, you and I know 
even with with a with a president like this one, you know how much of politics can you know can be trumped up information and uh, you know a lot of smoke and mirrors. Uh, but if 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 Trump's handpicked cabinet is working with this guy and saying uh, like this is unsafe for the nation, then what political cost is too high to carry out your duty? And enact the and and uh, uh, take advantage of the Twenty Fifth Amendment and get this guy out of office. Like uh, th- this whole like vigilante, uh, 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 th- this vigilante sentiment that oh yeah, this is crazy, but you know uh, I'm such a savvy uh, you know savvy person that I'll, I'll you know I'll stop the really bad stuff from happening on the inside. That's not sufficient. Uh, and so if if there really is this widespread recognition within Trump's cabinet that he is unfit for office, then the 25th Amendment is in a reach. Uh, that's what it's there for. Uh, and I would, uh, you know, urge the cabinet to reconsider whether uh, it, it won't be saving themselves. They, they've served in this administration for almost two years now, uh, but they may save the the the, the country from uh from you know the occasion when Gary Cohn isn't able to reach inside the president's uh, desk to uh, to take out an order that would have massive global uh, economic and foreign uh, national security implications. Yeah, and so uh, it, there's there's a lot to say, but I'll I'll sort of leave my comments there because I could go on this for for quite a while. Just to, but uh, this is this is. Um, uh, th- there are no heroes in in this in this story in my book. Yeah, I agree. And let's not make the White House even more of a reality show than it already is. Let's do things the right way. There is a protocol, and it should be followed in all instances because it protects us from from certain things. So on to the next subject. Uh, as you know, uh, Michael, there was a social justice statement that was put out by. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur and some others. As many of you know, John MacArthur is a renowned Christian author. Again, he's a pastor at Grace Community Church in California, and he's also the president of the Masters University. Um, Many people have read uh, his books, and I've enjoyed some of his books, um, especially 12 Ordinary Men, where he was talking about Jesus' disciples, and he's put some good work out there. As of late, though, his commentary on social justice, I think a lot of people have found to be problematic. Um, and he's made he's come out with some articles and now uh, him and some others have come out with a statement addressing uh, social justice and the gospel and how those two things fit together or don't fit together. Now, I want to give voice to some of the concerns because we want to be fair on this show. We're not here to disrespect uh, John MacArthur. Uh, We just want to have a good dialogue because none of these folks are infallible. And so if we see a mistake, according to the gospel as the standard, uh, then we want to we want to say something about it. And so I want to give voice to some of the concerns that I think these folks are trying to address. So what I think John MacArthur and some of his friends are trying to uh, address is the social gospel is a fear of liberation theology um, and, and another type of theology where everything becomes earthly, right? Where addressing justice becomes more important than actually the vertical relationship with God, that you no longer need salvation, you no longer need transformation, that God is just about the, the oppressed and is not 
necessarily asking anything of us. Uh, some would call it uh, cheap grace in a way. And so I think on the white evangelical side, and you can correct me uh, if I'm wrong, Michael, the fear is once we get involved with social justice, then we start to go inevitably into this social gospel where we're lessening kind of the the words in the gospel and the vertical relationship with Christ. There may be some other things to it, but in general, that's what I'm hearing. And it also leads to other, you know, other movements. So some would say when you get into the social gospel, now it moves into affirming uh, 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 behaviors that we're not supposed to affirm and all these other things, which moves us further and further away, away from the gospel. That's what I think they're trying to address. And so I would ask I would ask everyone to read this statement on social justice from uh, John MacArthur and others for yourself. Read it for yourself. The problem I saw with it, which it wasn't the language wasn't as strong as I expected it to be against uh, justice in general. So it said, yes, justice is important. Everybody should be given their due, things like that. Uh, And so I expected the wording to be a little stronger. But what I think it did and my major problem with this statement and uh, my friend uh, Rasul Berry talks about this very well in an article that he just wrote is that it leaves room for too many evangelicals who don't want to deal with social justice to not deal with it, right? And, and, and gives too much room to say, well, social justice could be an issue that brings us away or distracts from the gospel. Therefore, we don't have to do it. My response would be, it is part of the gospel. It is part of biblical values that it is part of the work of the master. And, and in that it's part of the work of the master. We we are called to join him in that work. Now, when we go about pursuing justice, we do it to glorify God. So we must do it on his terms, which means that some of the things that we consider social justice issues in our society really aren't things that Christians can be involved in. But instead of kind of blanketly saying, don't go do that. I think the best way to go about it is actually to uh, uh, do it the right way and show people what it really looks like to have biblical justice and move on from there. This is one of those huge subjects that we could talk about this the entire show. Um, but what, what are your just general thoughts on this statement and, and kind of the conversation that's come about around it? Yeah, Justin, I, I thought your comments we're really good. I think your advice that folks read this for themselves. I, I had uh, quite a few problems with the document. Uh, I, I think, um, and I do think that there's a uh, a worthwhile criticism here for uh, the the fact that this uh, statement was was put out. Uh, with a relatively small group of, of signers, which is, you know, which, which is fine. Uh, uh, but that it didn't seem to be too cognizant of the way that others would, would read it. Uh, and, and so I, I just think the whole, the fact that they, you know, release now, the fact that there's a context around this, uh, this conversation, the fact that it comes at a time when MacArthur has been uh, doing this, this blog post series on social justice, and it's sort of uh, tied up in that. And, and then, you know, as Michael Gerson pointed out in the Washington Post, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that you look at the evangelical landscape right now in this country and uh, think that the major problem right now is uh, evangelicals uh, 
overwhelming commitment to social justice is is just uh it doesn't reflect reality and and so uh and so you know i think think that's important i i will say that uh i i agree with you justin when i based on some of the conversation i was hearing i think people clicked on this ready to hate it <laughs> and, 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 and ready to sort of uh, uh, dissect it and tear it down. And, uh, and there's definitely stuff to critique. Uh, I was, uh, the, the language was uh, couched a bit more uh, uh, than I thought it would be. Uh, and I will say some of the reaction that I've seen uh, has been, to go too too far in the other direction, uh, to to actually uh, to act as if uh, there was nothing to agree on in the words that were said, uh, and, and I think I don't know how constructive uh, that is for uh, for having a conversation to trying to build. Uh, unity, not necessarily even with the signers of the statement, but with those who are reading it, who may not be as invested or involved in uh, some of the uh, some of the uh, more uh, uh, detailed conversations around this. You know, folks who aren't you know reading articles every day and reading books on justice and that kind of thing. Uh, but for, for for them to read that document, uh, I'm sure a lot of it sounded like like. Common sense, believe in the authority of Bible, uh, relationship, as you point out, uh, Justin, relationship with uh, uh, God is not uh, sort of uh, nullified by a commitment to justice. And then to hear some of the criticism uh, that, that couldn't find anything worthy of acknowledgement, uh, I, I think is is unsettling and, and, and confusing to folks. Um I, I I do just want to recommend, as you said, Barry's uh, Barry's article and, and post uh, on this, and we've seen some some really wise, uh, thoughtful responses uh, from a few others, and that has been encouraging. Uh, but, but Justin, you know, it's it's uh, you know another statement that came out that just it doesn't seem to uh, to really consider. Uh, in a way that that I think you know reflects what is needed. You know w- what are the pressing challenges confronting the church broadly, confronting evangelicalism, uh, and I think a lot of folks are tired of things like this uh, taking over sort of the conversation for a period of time that uh that that just seem to don't uh, to not jive with reality yeah and it, and it 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 deals in a false dichotomy that the and campaign has really been working hard to debunk which is when you go full throttle into the justice conversation where and we can get into the semantics justice social justice biblical justice whatever you want to call it that you are automatically or that you're going to get close to saying, OK, salvation is no longer needed. Go into inclusivity and all these other things. That is just not true. And some of the people that they're talking to, I feel like they're just creating a, what we call a straw man where they're, yeah. you know, they're, they're talking to the worst of them. But this is really response in some ways to efforts like MLK 50 where the ERLC and Gospel Coalition came together and said, hey, justice is important. And I thank them for making that move. But if you're talking to the group who was at 
MLK 50. And you're talking about the importance of salvation and scripture. We don't need you to tell us that we've never lost that. And in fact, it's our commitment to scripture is why we know that we have to be a part of the work of justice. And that's what is based on scripture. So none of of the people that they seem to be addressing even have issues with some of the things that they brought up. Right. It almost feels like sometimes we find an evil or we find an error and we do all we can to say so far away from that error that we end up uh, erring on the opposite side. So we see, okay, the social gospel is there because they think justice is more important than everything else. Let's not even touch it. Let's get as far away from justice as possible so we don't make that mistake. And that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to let the gospel be be the standard and not the standard be what people are doing wrong, right? So we look at the gospel, we see we need to be about justice, we see we also need to be transformed and we need salvation and we need to uh, take scripture seriously and we find the best way to do both. And that's really what the AND campaign is about. And I think uh, this statement misses that to some extent and that's unfortunate, but I want to keep the conversation open. You never know, some of those signers could come along, you know, one day could see uh, what we're saying and, and move forward on this because this is the business of 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 the gospel in part uh, is justice. Absolutely, Justin. I, I think that's right on point. And, you, you know, I think uh, I would encourage those who, who do uh, see that uh, justice is connected to the gospel. I know it feels futile, uh, futile sometimes and uh it seems like uh, folks, uh, it, the polls of this debate are are uh, or, or the the only options in this debate are not the MacArthur Statement and Union Seminary, which uh, I have friends at, at Union. Uh, they they tw- tweeted out their response uh, uh, to to the statement that I, I thought it got some very important things very wrong. Uh, it's important that those aren't the only voices in this conversation. And it can very easily seem like they are because they're sort of the most strident and the loudest. And uh, uh, they sometimes seem to be uh, uh, most organized. Uh, But it's important that you speak out. It's important that there are institutions um, uh, that uh, embody a, 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 a different expression that it's not just uh, 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 sort of the extremes that have institutions and are working towards a goal. Well, uh, the rest of us are just like, you know, this is just too, uh, th- th- this is too messy to really get involved in. Uh, that's how these conversations play out the way they do. And, uh, and it's time for, for, for that to, that to change. And so, uh, uh J- Justin, I- I'm so glad that we are able to have these conversations on the podcast, uh, and, and uh, w- we'll continue to address these, these kinds of threads moving forward and especially to lift up. Up, uh, those like like uh, Barry, like uh, uh, like Tabidi, T- who had a great response on this, um, uh, who are uh, offering, uh, I-, I think, a, uh, a healthy gospel centered approach to these kinds of questions. 
Yeah. So keep having the conversation. Don't be afraid of either side. You can engage it, but make sure that you're looking to the Bible for the standard and not kind of ideological things, because I have a feeling that this is somewhat more ideological than it is biblical. Uh, we appreciate, but uh, well, let me, before I end, let me also say this. I think it highlights what we were talking about today and the work that uh, you, me, CJ Rhodes and all the other folks in our leadership council uh, need to do. Uh, we need to make our voices heard uh, so that we can have a more authentic voice and a clearer voice when it comes to the gospel. Thank you all for joining us uh, on this episode. We will be back and it will be regular again. You know, we were very regular for a while and the summer just got to us along with the work that we were doing. But we thank you for your time. Uh, you want to take us out, Michael? Yeah. And I- I've been waiting for this. This is the Church Politics Podcast brought to you by the Ann Campaign. Have a blessed week, y'all. Take care.